Off we go. We are August the 2nd, 2015. Lecture discussion number 206 on the Book of Romans. Um, it's a beautiful day for those of you who care about such stuff in Alaska, so uh, we're down to pretty much the, the bare minimum of the holy people here today. We're supposed to have a very hot remaining summer. By hot, we mean 76 or so all through August. That's what they're projecting for us. Uh, so that'll be very exciting. We're, we're all thrilled, both of us anyway. Before we return to our foray into Mark 11 and 12, I thought you'd be interested again uh, to hear from our Australian outpost, uh, what we call Cliffside Australia now. Uh, Dr. Peter has offered a few thoughts on the prospects of Ezekiel 38 occurring soon in the Middle East. And, and don't fret and don't groan. Uh, it's not physics and chemistry this time. It's a merely geopolitical analysis. Uh, Dr. Peter sends his condolences for reading his letters. Uh, so I brought it today because I thought it was particularly uh, uh, applicable. So here we go. Dr. Peter from uh, Cliffside, Adelaide, Australia. Hi, Pastor Cronister. So it's been warm, has it? Does that mean you're going to post pictures of the congregation sitting in their bathing suits because of the unseasonable heat? Or perhaps just slumped listlessly and dripping with perspiration contemplating another lecture? I can almost imagine Steve with mosquito netting safari hat out front wearing flip-flops called thongs here in Australia, but I think that's something entirely different in the United States. <laughs> I can imagine the famous dry uh, erase whiteboard with a few trails of smudged black ink. At 80 degrees Fahrenheit, Jennifer in Arizona, who shall remain nameless, and I would still be in a city, still be sitting with a jacket on. Then again, if I had to endure your winters, you would probably just see nothing of me except for a pile of blankets with perhaps an arrow slit so I could look out. I am interested in your comments about the way things are heating up in the Middle East. I think the involvement of Turkey represents the greatest destabilizing influence thus far. As you know, Dr. Peter uh, has a great deal of expertise in this area. The Turks were involved in the massacre of the Armenians and have never acknowledged or accepted any criticism of this event. They have, long, they have a long-held hatred of the Kurds. You may recall that some time ago there was a ship that deliberately entered Palestinian-Israeli waters trying to break the blockade or the blockage by Israel against contraband. Essentially, Israel was trying to stop weapons from entering into the Gaza area. Um, some of the people, including two Turks, were on board, and they wielded knives and guns. In fact, I believe it originated out of Turkey. The Israeli forces subdued them, and two were killed. Turkey is trying to build their credentials with the Arab world, and they see Israel as part of their former territory under the Ottoman Empire. I would not be at all surprised if Turkey attacks Israel, perhaps in retaliation for some military intervention during their operation against the Kurds. If an Israeli aircraft is in the area when a Turkish plane gets shot down fighting against the Kurds, they might blame the Israelis. If you wonder about Turkish rule, it is, it is a well-known practice that the people were taxed heavily on the basis of the number of trees, among other things. To avoid the punishing taxes, the people cut the trees. Even so, for, inv for evading taxes, the Turks would salt the earth. 
If the people couldn't pay the taxes on productive lands, then they wouldn't be able to grow anything. So in other words, that was a typical Turkish practice. Back to uh, Dr. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Dr. Peter. The Turks are also amongst the descendants of the Scythians, the Scythian Empire. I don't know if you're familiar with the Scythian Empire, but it was mostly Armenia. So if you want to think of it as uh, southern Russia, go ahead. That's not particularly accurate, but it's close enough to get you there geographically. The Turks are also among, amongst the descendants of the Scythians that the Apostle Paul wrote about. The Scythians were originally located in a region around Kiev and Donetsk. Indeed, the largest Scythian ruins uh, are near Donetsk. Barely say it in large tongue. The Russian and Turks both claim to have a Scythian heritage. If you look at the descriptions from um, any resource book, they list numerous reasons why the Scythians were uh, uh, um, were hated. Uh, there's an error here. Duplicity and lies loom large in their culture. At one stage, they are said to have pleaded for aid from their enemies. Once the enemies were fought off, even though they were sheltered against the onslaught and their protectors lost many warriors, they turned on their benefactors and slaughtered all of them. So that is Scythian um, culture, Scythian, um, if you wish to think of it that way, uh, lore. If Turkey fires on Israel, I expect Russia to be immediately involved in a significant way. And I agree with that, actually. I think uh, Dr. Peter is correct. The question has long been considered by scholars of Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38 scholars. What's going to happen at the end of the age with the remnant of the Ottoman Empire, which is present-day Turkey? So, in other words, what is Turkey going to do? And all agree that Turkey will follow Russia. So when you see Russia or Gog or Magog in uh, Ezekiel 38, I believe that Turkey is part of that that confederacy. But I also think, for many reasons, in the Scythian Scythian heritage being the primary one, that the majority of all scholars have correctly placed Turkey within the Armenian construct. Even though the Turks have destroyed and slaughtered the Armenians, they are still considered part of Armenia in that sense, geographically, Ezekiel 38.5. Armenia bordered Turkey, as you probably all know. So that would make um, Turkey Togar, Tog, I'm going to say it, Togama, Togarma, in Ezekiel 38. And, and it's assumed by most that Turkey is Togarma. And I believe uh, that it is without question the case that Turkey is going to participate gleefully in this invasion of Israel that comes at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And uh, they're going to be part of it gleefully and they're going to attack Israel. The Turks hate the Jews. They hate the Israelis. They always have. And as we should expect, just this past week, the Turkish military has begun to enter the stage. I hope you're watching all of these these bulletins that come out of the Middle East, you might have to go and do some research, but the Turkish military has now come on the stage, doing exactly, positioning itself exactly as as Ezekiel 38, uh, verse 5, has said they would. Because, uh, as you know, the Turks just don't load the Jews, as as, uh, Dr. Peter just reminded us that they also seek to exterminate the Kurds. 
That takes us now to Isaiah, as you know, 19, 23 through 24. Maybe 25, if you want to go all the way to 25, it would be appropriate. That is the blessing of the Assyrians, the Israelis, and the Egyptians. There is a great blessing that God says that he will give the Assyrians because they fight on the side of Israel at the end of the age. That's the Kurds right now. Great blessing in Isaiah that links them, the Egyptians, and Israel. The blessing of the road. Um, the Turks hate the Kurds, or if you will, the Assyrians. And as you're aware, how many of you, I hope you're all aware of it. If you're not, now you are. The Turkish Air Force has been bombing the Kurdish Peshmerga. Do you know who the Peshmerga is? They just started bombing them this week. And they have, they're doing it with the consent of somebody. Do you know who has allowed the Turkish Air Force to start bombing the Peshmerga? That's correct. It is the President of the United States has personally intervened on behalf of Turkey so they could begin to bomb the, Pesh, the Peshmerga. That's not an insignificant development. Now, you might ask appropriately, why would the President of the United States get on the phone to the Turkish President and allow and give permission for Turkey to kill Kurdish forces? The Kurdish Peshmerga are what right now in that conflict in the Middle East? There's a military war going on there. On side of who are the Kurdish Peshmerga fighting? They are the only effective ground troops against the ISIS caliphate right now, are the Kurds. They're the only ones that are stopping them and really the only ones that are fighting. The Iranians and the Turks uh, both hate the Kurdish Peshmerga. And they're hoping that, they, that a war of attrition takes place between ISIS and, Pesh, and the Peshmerga to where both of them are wiped out and there's no, there's no, uh, there's no force there. So again, why would the President of the United States allow Erdogan, he's the Turkish President, Recep Erdogan, why would the President of the United States want to nullify the singular army that has succeeded against ISIS and is functioning uh, effectively against ISIS? Why would he do that? Well, here's a few little known facts. Besides Turkey being Togomar, Ma, uh, we need to know this. ISIS is selling all of its captured oil. All of it. As it works its way through the Middle East, it accumulates money from the banks, it accumulates munitions, and it's accumulating oil. All of its captured oil is being dispersed into the world through Turkey. All of it. 100%. So the Turks are taking the captured ISIS oil and utilizing their infrastructure to disperse it onto the world market. And who's getting the money for that? ISIS. They're funding their, their effort. What does ISIS do with the money, by the way? They're running a, what's called a, an army welfare system. They're paying these foreign fighters that they have with this money they're getting from the... Uh, from the oil that they're capturing. ISIS is utilizing Turkey as a means of transmitting its foreign recruits. As many as 30,000 foreign fighters have come through Turkey. They're coming into ISIS through Turkey. That's how they're doing it. 
and they and they uh, arrived at the ISIS caliphate that way. Without dispute, Turkey is closely allied with ISIS economically and militarily. And now they have permission to start attacking the Kurds. And we have Turkey and ISIS allied economically and now militarily seeking to destroy the Assyrians. That's what's going on. That happened this week. That's an amazing event. Hardly anyone knows outside of, outside of Jerusalem that this is going on. You, no one in this, has it been reported here? No. You might find it if you search hard enough, but you'll have to search. Effectively, the United States government has abandoned the Kurds and shifted all elements of our support to Turkey. The presidents, the Turkish president and the United States president are on the phone personally calling each other. That, again, is not in controversy. What does the United States get in return? You might have noticed. The United States now has permission from Turkey to launch strikes from Turkish airfields at ISIS. So they can get there very, very fast. The Kurds, however, are now under intense Turkish bombardment. Keep in mind this blessing that God says in Isaiah 19. So, who's going to defend that Isaiah 19 blessing? It's not going to be the United States. Who's going to value, who's going to value it? The great blessing of Isaiah 19, 24 and 25. Well, as I read Dr. Peter's postulate there, likely the Israelis are going to do that. He's absolutely right. The Israelis are not going to just happen to be in the area when the Turkish jets come in. They're going to start shooting down Turkish jets. I suspect it's already happened. Somebody's going to defend the Peshmerga. And it's going to be the Jews. Because they understand Isaiah 19. Just like I could say to you, there's no question in my mind that Turkey is going to attack Israel because this is what Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 38 says they are. They're Togomar. What's going to happen if, if an Israeli jet shoots down a bunch of Turkish? Uh, by the way, how many, how many Turkish uh, pilots are going to be shot down by one Jewish uh, fighter? Boy, they'll slaughter them. Absolute. There is no comparison between an Israeli uh, fighter pilot and a Turkish fighter pilot. It will be a massacre. So what's going to happen when the Turkish Air Force starts to get blown out of the sky? It should be obvious to all of us by now that the United States government is not going to intervene. I think this clear as it could be. That's already the case with the Peshmerga. It will likewise be the case with the Israelis. Israel, the faithful remnant that is in Israel now, is going to be isolated. That is a fact of biblical prophecy that Israel is going to be absolutely alone except for two nations. One is the Peshmerga, are the Assyrians, and the other is the southern Egyptian. That's it. That's why they're blessed. The United States, not there. 
Israel will be alone at the time of the end of the age of the Gentiles. To repeat, the sign of the taken bride, the woman taken by the hand, is especially significant for the nation of Israel. When that happens, they recognize now we are in the period of isolation. All we will have is the Kurds and some parts of Egypt. That's all we will have. And I submit, as you know, uh, especially recently, that the sign of the abducted bride, when the church is taken, that sign is exclusively a sign for Israel itself alone. I don't think anybody else knows it. I know that's a minority view, but I just think it's too obvious and it's too clear logically. I have for quite some time considered the reaction then of the Jewish faithful remnant when the sign of the abducted bride occurs, and they're the only ones that know it. Nobody else is going to know it. If I'm right, just consider that for a second. Why do I say if I'm right? I don't know. But let's go ahead and see the hypothesis that I'm right and the only one that knows that the church has been taken by the bridegroom is Israel. That's it. Maybe the Kurds know and maybe parts of southern Egypt know, but nobody else knows. So I start to imagine these are the faithful remnants, all kinds of different classifications of Jews. You have apostate Jews, okay? You have Messianic Jews. You have the 144,000 Jews. We'll get to all of this in the weeks to come. And then you have the faithful remnant Jews. The faithful remnant Jews, mostly all of those in Israel, they are not going to bend or bow to the Antichrist. And they're going to figure out that they're alone when that bride is taken. When the rapture comes, they're going to figure it out. The bride has been removed. And I want to know, what are they going to do? And I imagine what it might, might be like for them. What do you think they'll do? Imagine that you're in Israel and the Jews know the church is gone. Now they know the period of isolation is on them. Here it comes, baby, the time of Jacob's trouble. It isn't going to be avoided now. What do they do? How do they think? Do they tell anybody? I don't think they tell anybody. Because you, otherwise you have them trying to convince people. Where's the, what, they're alone. They're ever, they can't trust anyone. Do they talk about it? They know it. If they did talk about it, would anybody believe them? And then we have this ministry of the 144,000, and we have to get into that, as I said, in the weeks to come. So I just want you to think about that, all that. Because right now, Turkey is bombing Assyrian Christians. Right now, in your lifetime. You've got to consider this. Togomah is bombing Assyria. There hasn't been any, there hasn't been an Assyria for 2,700 years. There hasn't been anybody for Togomah, Togomah, I can bear, I always leave out the R. There hasn't been anybody for them to fight. And here they are, just as the Bible has predicted would happen at the end of the age of the Gentile. Okay, I'm left far ahead of myself and I violated my own rules. I gave you comments. Uh, not wanting to do, but because of, because of the fact that the Scythians, Togomar, Ma, Erdogan, 
has surfaced. Oh, by the way, by the way, uh, the President Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, he's he's surrounded himself by somebody. That his inner circuit circle, his confidant. Do you know who his his group that that gives him all of his political strength is in Turkey? Do you know? It's the Muslim Brotherhood. They are, that's not a surprise. The Muslim Brotherhood is a powerful political force. It reaches into Europe as well as where else? The United States. That's correct. Absolutely correct. We can be certain of a couple of things. That those who have affinity, who surround themselves with the Muslim Brotherhood, will be an enemy of Israel. It will be that way every single time. The Muslim Brotherhood is attracted by one primary focused goal, and that is to kill Jews. Expect nothing else. Don't be deceived. Every time you see the presence of the Muslim Brotherhood, wherever it surfaces, the the goal is to kill Israelis. Okay, now let us begin our second run now through Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, where we've been. (coughs) Hopefully now you kind of got a a heads up or a grasp of how this all fits together. I hope you do. I've been doing my best to beat it into you. So let's see where we are. And you kind of grasp the order. That's important. If you've got the order, then you get the total context of all of this. All of chapters 11 and 12 in Mark, they directly interface with all the other components. So when I give you a component, um, then you need to know immediately that there is nothing in Mark chapter 11 and 12 that is not affected by that which is in uh, that's contained elsewhere in chapter 11 and 12. So if I tell you the unwritten donkey, for example, uh, then you know that unwritten donkey is going to show up somewhere else in Mark, not just in chapter 11, but also in chapter 12. It's just how it's going to work. All the pieces are going to connect. So, uh, for example, I'm going to tell you the unwritten donkey and the fig tree are, are linked. They have to be the cleansing of the trip of the temple is interwoven with the vineyard parable. If you were here last week, we did a beginning on the vineyard parable. Have a little bit of cleaning up to do, but the vineyard parable is going to connect to the unwritten donkey. The question of taxes to Caesar comes next, and the John the Baptist question. Those two questions are completely inseparable. When you see what, why is it that Christ is dealing with a question on should Caesar get paid taxes by what kind of coin? Well, that has something that's absolutely tied directly to uh, why Christ asked about John the Baptist. And it's important to see in the cornerstone. We're going to get to a psalm here. Um, I believe it's 118. Let me make sure before I just say something that's not completely right. Yeah, Psalm 118, which is the cornerstone. We sing songs about it. The cornerstone is going to be connected to the vineyard, going to be connected to the donkey. They're all together. There's nothing in 11 and 12 of Mark that can be set aside. It's all uh, and all deeply interwoven, and it's important to see as many of these connections as we possibly can. They are incredible, absolutely incredible, as incredible as any place in Scripture. And they're right there for us to see where some are not so easy. These are not hidden, and they're still unbelievable. The prophecies here. Obviously, the fig tree and the vineyard are aspects of the sign of the wife. What I mean by that, I have the sign of the abducted bride and I have the sign of the wife. And obviously, the fig tree and the vineyard, that's Isaiah 5, those are aspects of the sign of the wife. 
knowing the sign of the wife is critical because once you know the sign of the wife, now you have the understanding of how its complement fits with it. The sign of the removed or the abducted bride feathers in with the sign of the wife. So now you have a really important piece of end time prophecy now. So let's go ahead. We're going to read from Mark 12. We're going to start at Mark 12, 9, where Jesus God asked the tenant farmers of the vineyard a solemn question. He's, this is what he says to them, right? Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's his question that he asked. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, remember, in verse 8, the Pharisees are being told this to their face. In verse 8, let me go back up here a second. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. He says that to their face. That's the Pharisees. He's given this parable to the Pharisees. So he says to the Pharisees that they are going to try to kill the last sent one from the owner of the vineyard. And then that very significant detail, I hope you saw it, I hope you noticed it, and I hope you asked yourself when we read it last week, wow, that's kind of interesting. This very detail that the Pharisees will cast the body of the last person they kill, or attempt to kill, over the walls of the city. And again, did you ask yourself why? Now, that's interesting, huh? So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. So they threw the body over the fence of the vineyard. Why throw the body over the fence? Why not bury him in the vineyard? Why throw the body out of, Israel, out of Jerusalem? Why not just kill him in Jerusalem? What is God saying to the Pharisees? Did they know the fact that they weren't going to bury the body of the last one the owner sends to the vineyard tenant farmers? They knew who they were. They knew what the parable meant. Did they understand why they would throw the body over the fence? Of course they did. They knew what it meant. And that's, by the way, here, let me insert this again. Everybody that's involved in Matthew 12 in the parable of the vineyard, Everybody knows that everybody knows who is who in this parable of the vineyard. Everybody knows, the Pharisees all know that they're the murdering tenant farmers. When Christ is telling them this story, they know that he's calling them murdering farmers. Okay? So that isn't in dispute. In all of this in the sense that the Pharisees know that Israel is the planted vineyard. They've got that part. And they know they're the wicked, murderous tenant farmers. And God knows, Christ knows, that he is both the owner and the beloved son. That's What is that? He is both the owner and the beloved son. Let me say it the other way around. He is the beloved son and the owner. What's that? That's two advents, isn't it? Two comings. He comes as the beloved son. He comes as the owner of the vineyard. King. He comes as the prophet, the suffering prophet, if you want to think of it that way. But you have to know what he suffers of, not physical pain. He suffers for the lost. But he is the prophet, the rejected prophet, and the king, the Messiah king. Some will say Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David, right? The Pharisees didn't know that Christ was saying that he was both the owner and the beloved son. But they knew that he was saying he was the beloved son, the last one sent, and you're going to try to kill me. And then when you try to kill me, you're going to cast my body over the fence. 
The Pharisees had no idea of who this really was standing before him, but they did recognize that Christ placed himself in the position of the owner of the vineyard, and and uh, they had no idea as to the true identity of the only beloved son. All of that remained in doubt with them, but they did know everything else. The religious Jews had no comprehension that God would add humanity and come twice. They still don't have that. They do not know what's called in theology the hypostatic union, God adding humanity, God-man, Jesus-God, whichever way you want to say it, Savior and King. They didn't have that figured out, that that's the same person. They thought it was two different persons. They still think it's two different persons. Okay, so let's remind everybody uh, what we got. The pieces, if you will. We started out last week with the taking of the donkey. And I'm wording it this way. Taking of the unridden donkey. I could do it this way, couldn't I? I could call it the abduction. Of the donkey, couldn't I? Would that help you? And then we had the inspection Christ then went and inspected the temple. And then he followed that up with another inspection. He inspected the fig tree. So that's our order so far, right? And then he went and had what's called the cleansing of the temple. The overturning of the tables of the money changers. I emphasize that for a reason. After that, we have what's known as the John the Baptist question. Is John from heaven or is John from earth, essentially? And then, then we got to, let me make sure I didn't miss any, the parable of the vineyard. So, that's the progression to this point. I want you to begin looking at this as cause and effect, or basic mathematical uh, precepts. The taking of the donkey, or the entry into Jerusalem, when he takes the donkey, that's something that he causes. The effect of taking the donkey means that he's going to enter Jerusalem, and that means that he will inspect the temple. He will walk through his house. Once he's walked through his house, the effect of that cause is that he now will go to a fig tree and he'll inspect the fig tree. That tells you that this is a natural, orderly progression. It's like I have a list of things I have to do, and I have to do it in this order. It's no different, as I said before. I've got to start with the foundation, then I put the seal on, then I put the seal plates on, and then I put the... I connect all my hold downs and my anchor bolts, and now I come across with my joists. I put in my blocking and my rims, and then I go with my my diaphragm. Right? I got an order to things. Everything um, everything causes something else. I have to do this before I can do that. That's what's happening here. 
you want to think of it that way, it's a human way of perspective, but, but recognize the taking of the donkey and the inspection of the temple are exactly what should go one and two, followed by three, four, five, and six. So the parable of the vineyard is related immediately to the question that he asks about John the Baptist. As soon as he does the John the Baptist question, then it's time for the parable of the vineyard. It fits beautifully. One step will lead you to the next. Again, cause and effect, if you want to think of it that way. The John the Baptist question causes the parable of the vineyard. That would be appropriate. Christ asked the Pharisees, is John the Baptist sent by me? That's what he asked them. I'll read it for you. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me, he said. God says, answer me. What, what's, the, what's going to happen? Is John the Baptist sent by God? Christ is saying, did I send John the Baptist or not? what he's saying to them. Or is John the Baptist simply another man? Answer me, Christ commands them. The Pharisees answer, all right, what do they say? We don't know. That was true, absolutely, perfectly true. That's an indictable statement, actually. That statement will be played for them. They don't know. They don't know if John the Baptist was sent by Christ. They don't know that Christ is the last sent one. And that exchange now results in the parable of the vineyard. So he now, because they said, we don't know, because they could not answer the John the Baptist, was he sent by Christ or not, now's the time to talk to them about this vineyard. And that the vineyard parable, as you know from last week, that contains John the Baptist. With the death of John the Baptist comes the final messenger to Israel. When John the Baptist dies, he's the last prophet that has been... Do you know, if you ask any Jew, I said it last week, who is the last prophet that God sent to Israel? They will say John the Baptist. Not Malachi, John the Baptist. Was the last Jewish recognized prophet. The parable says the last person that comes, the person that comes after the last prophet, will be the beloved son of the owner. They do not know, as as I've said before, they do not know that the beloved son and the owner are the same person in the sense of the triunity of God. So, with the death of John the Baptist, the final messenger will come, God himself, and God himself will be rejected. And that causes God to do, say this. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers. He will come and destroy the Pharisees. And he will give the vineyard to others. So who got the vineyard if the vineyard is Israel? Mark 12:9, right? The owner who had obviously intended his vineyard to be of great value. He built a wall around it. Think about what God has done. He built a wall around Israel. He built a tower to fortify Israel. He built a wine press and a, and a vat to gather the wine. 
The owner God demonstrates his care and his affection and his devotion to his planted vineyard. He just didn't put it out in the wilderness. He cleared it all out. He made a beautiful vineyard. But the tenant farmers, just as probably likely as in Matthew 24:48, if you remember that, that's when God put a servant in charge and then he went away and the servant said, I don't think he's coming back, so I'm going to start killing people. Just like that illustration, I have this illustration. The tenant farmers thought when the owner went far away that he would not ever return for his portion because there's a contract. See, you have a contract. Contract between the tenant farmers and the owner of the vineyard. And so they thought the, the contract's never going to be enforced because I have an absentee owner that can't see what we're doing. He doesn't know what's going on here and he's not coming back. That, by the way, so you know, there's a special crown given to people who believe in the return of Christ. People that believe that Christ will return. God's coming back. Because not a very, very few people think God is come back, coming back. They think he wound it up as a clock and just walked away from it. Agnosticism, if you want to think of it that way. So anyway, the tenant farmers thought that the faraway owner is never going to return for his position. Therefore, the contract would never be uh, enforced. And once they got into that mindset, they produced not one drop of wine. Never produced any wine at all. So when the owner's agent started to show up, if you want to think this way, the prophet. When the prophets of God started to come up and ask for wine, for fruit, what did the uh, tenant farmers do? What did the Pharisees do? What did the religious leaders of Israel do over the centuries? They started slaughtering the agents of God. They killed them all, everyone they could. And the owner sent how many contract agents, if you will? How many prophets has God sent to Israel? Many, many prophets. Did you ever ask why? You have a fourplex. You own the fourplex. You put a company in charge of renting out the fourplex. Company takes a share and you get your profits, right? You have an agreement. Rent's going to be this much. I'm going to collect my percentage. And every month you send somebody from your family to go and get your your contract share. And the homeowners association, for lack of a better term, kills your children. Everyone you send. How many children are you going to send? Maybe you send one. What do you do after that? But God didn't do that, did he? God sent one after another, after another, after another, asking for his portion that is in the contract. And he never got it. Not only did he not get it, they killed every one of his agents. So it tells you that the, the, the patient... The patience, the long-suffering of the owner. He sends many, many agents. He watches them get slaughtered. He saw that, they, that the tenant farmers produced not one drop of wine. No fruit ever produced. It's a barren vineyard. Just like the fig tree was also barren, right? 
So you see how they connect. The fig tree had no figs. How long should the owner allow this murder reign? And by the way, as you know, the atheists insist that the atheistic philosophers insist that the fact that God waits while mankind chooses evil is proof that God either doesn't exist or is evil himself. They'll say, well, all this murdering is going on. That's proof that God doesn't care. No, it's proof that God is long suffering. He's patient. The atheistic reasoning is nonsensical. God waits for repentance. But eventually, as you know, as you read the parable last week, uh, hopefully, and you're, or you're familiar with it if you weren't here last week, there is a final agent. And, and then and there's a, a, a second to the final agent. So there is John the Baptist, and then there is the owner's son, or Jesus God. The one before him, John the Baptist, and then it's time to send the owner's son, or the son owner, probably more appropriate. And all of that brings us to the cornerstone and Caesar's coins. So after number six, we're going to go to the cornerstone. And then, oops, six, and then seven, Caesar's coin. All of that is connected. So we should uh, read that section now. How am I doing? Doing good. So now we're at Mark 12, verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? Apparently they had not read the scripture. They did not know that the parable of the vineyard ties directly to Psalm 118. Got to have 118 of Psalm now, 118, 22, and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against him. So they left and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, okay, King Herod's guys. To catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, understand the Pharisees and the Herodians disagreed on the Roman rule. The Herodians, or Herod's people, they liked the Romans. He was a representative of the Roman government. The Pharisees hated the Romans. So I got two sides here. Why do I have two guys that normally hate each other and disagree on the Roman occupation coming to catch Christ at something? Obviously, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I need both sides. I need the Herodians, or the people representing the Roman side of the view, and I need the Pharisees, the people uh, representing the Jewish multitude side of the view, because I have a trap, right? Does that make sense? Should. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. What they mean by that is you do not honor Humanity. You are not somebody that bows before men. We know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Okay? So we've established that. That's the first part of the trap, or the trick question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay 
or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? That's an important question that God asked them. You have to know why they test him. Do you know why they set this trap? Remember the vineyard. What's the point of the vineyard? What's, what are the tenant farmers trying to do to the one that comes after John the Baptist? Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Does that, does that make you go, whoa, why does God say that? It should. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar that, that the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They realized immediately what he said was unbelievable. The key point to this part of this seven element or component uh, progression, the Caesar coin part, is the last five words. And they marveled at him. They marveled. Who marveled at him? The Pharisees and the Herodians marveled at him. They had gotten together. They constructed a plan. They had a test. And he obliterated it. And they were—they just could not believe it. They were greatly amazed. The words mean greatly amazed at the answer from the son owner. <coughs> the word translated marvel connotes an extraordinary, stunning, They were stunned response. The Pharisees could not believe how powerful Christ's answer was. They were astonished. They immediately understood that Jesus' answer was way beyond their own human capabilities. and, And by the way, they understood immediately that that answer got them back to the cornerstone and put them right back into the parable of the vineyard. Because they understood the parable of the vineyard. And and by the way, it took them all the way back to the abduction of the donkey. Because all of this progression, perfectly woven together in correct order. Perfect order. So there's now the obvious question. Did you, when you read that, or when you said that, or or have read this in the past, when you saw what Jesus said, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. Did that stun you? Did you react as the Pharisees and the Herodians did? Do you see the implications of Jesus God's answer? How is it that that answer refers to the parable of the vineyard and thus to the taking of the donkey? Well, let's begin, rebegin with the trap. What were the Pharisees attempting it and why are they attempting it? God asked them, why do you test me? Obviously, who are the Pharisees in this Caesar coin thing? They are the same as who from the parable of the vineyard. Who are the Pharisees in the parable of the vineyard? They're the murdering farmers. So why do they test him? Obviously, they are the murdering tenant farmers here. The son owner is before them. The vineyard parable is now playing out. Exactly as he gave the parable. Immediately after he gives the parable, here come the Herodians and the Pharisees to do exactly what's in the parable of the vineyard. So here comes the tenant farmers. 
There's the son owner in front of the tenant farmers. And the son owners, uh, or the tenant farmers, I'm sorry, they wish to possess the barren vineyard for themselves. And how do they think they're going to get the barren vineyard? Why did the Herodians and the Pharisees come together? The Roman side and the Jewish side. Why did they come? What their, what are, why do they test him? What's their plan? They're going to try to murder him. They've come. Why are they testing him? They're trying to kill him. As I said last week, they think that killing the heir will somehow result in their attaining the inheritance. As Supper Dave pointed out, that's a Genesis 15. Inheritance is everlasting life in the context of Genesis 15. Galatians. They have a reasoned logic behind this thinking. I gave that to you in the post game last, last week. I'll do it again next week, uh, I hope, if I remember. Let me make a note really fast. Logic. Hopefully, I'll write what page that's on. Page 11. So you folks on the internet, I'll make sure that you catch up with the actual attenders here. There's not very many of them today, so it won't be that difficult. This is an attempted murder. They have come to test him because they're trying to kill him. Exactly what they're doing in the parable of the vineyard. The Herodians and the Pharisees are the tenant farmers of the parable that just was given to them. They think that this is going to work. They're seeking to kill the son owner. That's why they ask him about Caesar's coin. The taxes. This is an attempt to kill him. If he answers it wrong, he's going to die. If he answers it wrong, who's going to kill him? What are they thinking? If he answers it one way, the Herodians are going to kill him. If he answers it the other way, they're going to kill him. They've got him. They're going to kill him. Why do you test me, he says. He knows why. We're trying to kill you. You see, Greek and especially Roman coins or currency featured human images. Right that word on the board for you. Images. I'll just put image. That'll help you get there. There's human images on these coins, and the Roman Caesars declared themselves to be gods. To the Jews, this was idolatrous, this was repulsive, it was paganism, it was vile. The Jews wouldn't touch the Roman money because on the Roman money was a declaration of divinity. So what did they need? They needed to have access to the Roman money. Because the Roman system was such that the only way you could pay the taxes is if you used one of Caesar's coins. So I've got it, but I can't touch it because it's idolatrous, it's paganism, it has an image on it that says that the person who represented on the coin is God himself and the high priest. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll repeat that in a minute. So the Jews wouldn't touch it. If the Jews won't touch it, what do they have to have? They have to have their money converted into Roman money, right? So who do they need to do that? They need a bank, don't they? What do we call that? If I have Canadian money, I go to the bank, and what do I do with it? I change it into U.S. currency, right? I need money changers, don't I? Where do I get money? Oh, right here and right here. 
So that is how Caesar's coin takes me back to the cleansing of the temple and the inspection of the temple. So far, so good. They need money changers. They need changers to transfer Roman coins to Jewish coins. Notice Mark 11:15. The Romans understood that the Jewish hated their Roman coins. And so they made certain to put chief priest on one side and God on the other. In other words, what I mean by that is Caesar, whoever the Caesar was, is identified as God on one side of the coin and high priest on the other. That was a particular insult to the Jews. Because Moses' Mosaic law said that you cannot be simultaneously a high priest and, and king. Or in this case, God. But God can, Melchizedek, right? High priest and king of Salem king of Jerusalem. So the Jews wouldn't touch it. And they knew that. And they knew that they could force the Jews to exchange the coin. They could utilize the coin to make the Jews acknowledge the Roman emperor as chief priest and to assent to the emperor's claim to divinity. If I can get a Jew to touch that coin, if he holds it in his hand, he is assenting to the emperor's deity. Does that make sense? All purposed. That's a Roman edict. The Roman denarius was the only coin allowed for imperial tax payment. If you didn't pay the imperial tax, what happened to you? Herodians killed you. It's a mark. You want to think of it that way? It's a mark, if you will. Everyone must have the mark. Everyone must worship the Roman emperor as king and as God and as high priest. Everyone. If you don't have the mark, you're dead. So the trap question is this. Is it lawful to allow within Scripture to use this coin, the Roman denarius? And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? Hypocritical about what? What is the exact specific hypocrisy with respect to this issue? I'll cover it next week, but you think about it now. The Pharisees saw Christ inviting Roman retribution if he says the coin is pagan worship. The Herodians kill him. Or disaffection from the multitude of Jews if he says it isn't. Does that make sense? If the multitudes now are ostracized from Christ because he says, go ahead and use the coin. Go ahead and touch a pagan idolatrous coin. If he says that, then the Jewish multitudes now are isolated from him. Pharisees can kill him, no problem. That's how they're thinking. If he says, no, the emperor is a pagan idol, then the Herodians or the Romans kill him. They got him trapped. There's no way he can get out of it, right? He's murdered either way. Murdered either way by the tenant farmers who then will cast his body over the fence right outside of the city. I hope you see that. So he's really saying, why do you test me? What he's really saying, why do you seek to kill me, to murder me? Why did the Pharisees want to kill the owner of the vineyard? It's a very important question to know why. But Jesus God, omniscient God as he is, says, bring me a denarius. And you should go, wow, okay, that makes no sense. This is omniscient God. He says, bring me a denarius. Why does omniscient God need to see a denarius? Let me reemphasize. The test is murder. Got to know that. The test is murder. Takes you back to the vineyard. Please don't lose that. Now, why does omniscient God need to see a denarius? Has he never never seen a denarius before? He's omniscient God. Well, he wants one. 
Does he need money? Does he have to pay taxes? Obviously, Jesus God does not need to see a denarius. But what's he do? Bring me a denarius. What's he done to them? Because they go right for it, don't they? Do you notice something? The Pharisees hand him a denarius. Now, what's the obvious question? Where did they get the denarius? They're Pharisees. They got a denarius. It's a coin that says the emperor of Rome is God and high priest. They're not supposed to have a denarius. They got to go get denariuses from the money changer. They, they, they can't touch the thing. They certainly can't use it. But he says, give me a denarius. Where did they get it? Why did they have it? Why are they touching it? How many of them do they have? They have a lot of them, don't they? They have pockets full of them. They have bags full of them. They have wheelbarrows full of Roman denarius. That's why they're what? Hypocrites. You have rooms full of denariuses. Okay, so far so good? It says really, so they brought. And then he goes along. Whose image is this, God asks? God asks. God asks, whose image is this? God is using the word image. Whenever God uses the word image, that's an extraordinary thing. Where are we now in the Bible? Where should we go? As soon as I see whose image is this, and God is asking whose image is this, where do I go? Genesis 1.26, right? Man is made in the image of God. The Pharisees answer Caesar's. Notice they did not answer that this is God's image on this coin. They answered Caesar's image. And the Romans would notice that too. Because Caesar is God. They should have said God. One, they shouldn't have had any denarius. And two, they should have never said Caesar. And so Jesus responds, then give it to Caesar. If you say it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. But then he says this, doesn't he? Let me read it to you. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give me my fruit. Let me repeat it. Render to Caesar the coin and give me my fruit. Give me that which has my image on it. What has the image of Christ on it? What has the image of God on it? What is the coin equivalent to God? Caesar gets a coin. What does God want? What is in his image? What has the image of God on it? People. This is Genesis 14, 19, 21. This is Abraham, Melchizedek, and Satan together arguing over the stuff and the people. The coins of God's, uh, a coin of God are human beings. So he says, give me my fruit. I've come for my fruit. I want my fruit. Give your coins to Caesar. We are coins with his image on him, and we are to give him back ourselves. He's going to take us back one way or the other. Next week, we'll finish that up as the musician comes forward.